Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Welcome back to the show, friends. Today we have with us from the great state, or we'll just say Canada. We'll say Canada. From Evansford, Canada, uh, Brad Jersick. Dr. Brad Jersick, how are you, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Now, you just told me that uh, off air that your name is Czechoslovakian. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. By origin. How, how far back uh, is your family uh, Czechoslovakian? Well, I guess my dad came over as a baby. Or okay. maybe he was even born in Canada, but just barely. So I'm, I'm second generation. So do you consider yourself fully Canadian? Full on, yeah. Full on Canadian. And you live, that is the western part of Canada where you are? Yeah, we're about 40 minutes from Vancouver, right at the coast. And I'm also just like two, two miles from the Washington state border. So oh. Canadians like to crowd down close to the border to get as warm as possible. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. Uh, are you born and raised that part of Canada? No, actually, I was born in Manitoba, which is like right near the border of North Dakota. So some Americans mistake my accent for a Minnesotan accent, actually, or someone from Fargo. <laughs> which, uh, and I was only 12 miles from there anyway. So it, like I say, we, we bunched down close to the States, but I, I married out West is what happened. Well, all I know is your accent is definitely not Texan. That's and I true. can, I can tell that for sure. Have you ever been to Texas though? I just got back from Houston. It oh, was really? Awesome. Yeah, I had my first crawfish there. Wow. What brought you down to the great state of Texas, the Lone Star State? I was doing some taping for a, a seminary down there, an online seminary called Grace. Mm -hmm. so. And you're, uh, you teach at uh, Westminster? Yeah, Westminster Theological Center in England, which isn't to be confused with Westminster Theological Seminary in the U.S. Quite different, actually. Okay. How long have you been there? Oh, let's see. Over three years now, I guess. Um, uh, I saw that you did uh, your doctoral work at Bangor's, which is UK as well? Yeah, Bangor in Wales as opposed to Bangor in Maine. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> right on. And so tell me, uh, tell us your, uh, your areas of expertise. Well, I guess I started, you know, it, a lot of it as a practitioner. I was a pastor for 20 years, pastor and church planter. But then when I got into writing, um, I started really with the stuff on hearing God's voice and contemplative theology um, but, uh, and uh, biblical studies in terms of my studies. Mm -hmm. And then the, the PhD was in theology. But that was interesting because I had one foot in theology and another in political science, and still another, if I had three feet, in, in <laughs> philosophy. So it was kind of like all over the map um, by get, nature of the people I was studying. Well, I can see theology and philosophy, but political science, how did that get mixed in there? Well, there's a whole political theology thing where if it, what you think about God uh, affects how you do um, political science. So, for example, if you, if you really believe in a retributive, punitive kind of God, then that's going to trickle down to how you think government should work or the criminal justice system and all of that. If you believe in God's uh, a restorative God, then, then your politics will be reflected more in terms of compassion and restoration mm. and so on. So it, yeah. it ends up uh, that you'll see a person's theology really affect their politics at times. And in fact, in an extreme way in the United States, I've noticed. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. In the United States, we have separation of church and state. So we never let our religion influence our politics. 
That's excellent. <laughs> I guess it's not like that above the border, huh? Actually, we're much more secularized. So um, in practice, you, you don't <laughs> see much influence of the church on the state. Mm-hmm. What's left of the church? <laughs> well, we will pray for you guys and hope one day you can become more like Texas. Because I know, awesome. I know that would be great <laughs> for you guys. Okay, so I have had uh, this podcast for a while, and I seem to get inundated with people saying, "Bring on this Brad Jersick guy on the podcast." Getting messages, getting comments, and I just tried to ignore you as long as I could. And then finally, people wore me down, and they said, "Hey." This guy knows Richard Rohr. He's friends with BZ, which is Brian Zahn for all of the people who don't know. And so I thought, okay, I guess we have to have him on. And so I read this book, your new one, A More Christ-Like God, and it was good. It was a good book. And you got Brian Zahn to write the intro for it. Yeah, if you know, if you know Brian Zahn as BZ, then that's excellent. We're, you know, it means we've got a good mutual friend there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in fact, a lot of a lot of the work that I've done in that book, uh, we developed many of those I- ideas together at some point. So I, I need to give credit where credit's due and his role in my life. Okay, before we get to the stuff that you worked on with BZ, talk to me about how you know Richard Rohr. Because you not only quote him, you also have a blurb on there from him. Yeah, actually, we've never met face-to-face. But back in 2008, I was working on atonement theology and alternatives to penal substitution. So I thought, well, I I really need to check around what different people from other streams are thinking. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, Rohr would be a good guy to ask because, you know, in terms of representing uh, Catholicism, at least a branch of it. And um, and he, he got back to me and wrote me a beautiful original piece for the Stricken by God book, and we've been in touch off and on ever since. Well, that's great. That's great. He is definitely... Uh, a wonderful person. I've I've enjoyed the time, so I've got to spend with him. And uh, yeah, he's definitely opened me up to Franciscan uh, theology. And I, I would be so embarrassed if he knew this, but my in-laws, who are Protestants, they had a, uh, a figurine, a statue, an icon, whatever you want to call it, of St. Francis in their backyard. And I looked at it, I was like, who is that? And they're like, it's St. Francis. And I felt Richard Rohr just crying on the inside because I didn't recognize it was St. Francis in my in-laws' yard. So don't tell him I said that, okay? I would be really no, your secret's safe with me, man. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so uh, you and BZ worked on some of this together, and I know uh, you have a sermon, which I actually saw online, about the two chairs, which you often, or which you also reference in the book, which d- doesn't BZ, he has the same, a very similar sermon that he's done with the same metaphor, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the guy who actually composed it is an East Orthodox priest in Colorado Springs named Anthony Carbo. And uh, Brian and I both found it at about the same time, and we were sharing it with each other. And then we said, okay, how do we tweak this now for an evangelical audience and, um, and then promote it really as a, what we're calling the chair revival now, <laughs> and it, which is very, very fun. Like, BZ went to India, and he actually trained 200 evangelists in doing the chair talk. And uh, yeah. Uh, we've been we've been seeing lots of people reproduce it in various ways, and of course, uh, some of those ways improve it, and some maybe water it down. I don't know, but we're doing the best we can. <laughs> That's good. Okay, before we get into the specifics of the two chairs, uh, let's talk about really the 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 goal or what you're trying to accomplish with the book. And it seems like what you're trying to articulate is a more beautiful God. Would that be fair to say? Try a more beautiful God. Yeah. Um, well, and specifically a more Christ-like one. And 
and that's in response to many unchristlike images that we believe are out there that actually distort people's faith and affect how they live every day. Yeah. Uh, how you imagine God to be massively impacts just every area of your life. And we're just saying, look at, well, we, I'm, I'm saying uh, God is exactly like Jesus. He's, he is the image of the invisible God. He's perfect theology. Uh, if you've seen him, you've seen God. And only if you've seen him, have you seen God. So yeah. in that sense, it's a very high Christology that we're saying actually is much more beautiful than any of the competition, even within Christianity. Yeah, so uh, it seems like, well, you're just quoting the book of Hebrews and the book of John when you say those things. So forgive me for being rude, but shouldn't we all like just get that? Shouldn't we all just, oh yeah, that's Jesus is God. We, we read Hebrews, we read John. That's what they're all saying. Why, why, is, why does there need to be a book explaining that to people? Why don't people get that? Yeah, it's, it's really awful. Um, I think there's two reasons. One is uh, we import images of God from other places, other experiences. Let's say, um, uh, from, you know, I might laminate my experience of my dad or of my pastor or of his preaching or of some authority figure with my image of, of Christ and, and and suddenly, uh, the Jesus who said, I'm there, I'm with you always, is blended with a dad who, like, disappeared at some point in my life. Hmm. Or with a punishing judge that I think is, like, ready to smite me at any moment from, let's say, revivalism preaching. Yeah. And then there's another side to it, too, and that is there's this very odd thing that's happening now where we'll... We've got an impression that Jesus is one aspect of God. So Jesus is the nice guy, but the Father's like the wrathful one that needs to be appeased. And Jesus sort of saves us from him. So it's almost a good cop, bad cop, where Jesus is seen as one facet of God, and that there's a whole different character out there. Um, and and Jesus gives you one side. It's like no, Jesus is the whole deal in yeah. terms of revealing what God is like. So how how do we prevent ourselves from, as you said, laminating, you know, our picture of our dad or a judge or some authority figure in our life and say, no, 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 that's not who God is. How do we keep those things separate? Like we in the States keep church and state separate so well, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose I, I'm almost not sure what you can do in terms of preventative maintenance except be saturated in the in the gospels themselves the jesus of the gospels needs to be our primary vision and that needs to show up in however we do christian education or preaching or teaching and so for example it's like no we don't believe in moses and joshua and david and abraham and jesus we, we believe in jesus the rest of those guys point to him in imperfect ways imperfect ways uh, but Jesus alone is, is central. And I really noticed this. I, I worked in a church with the Mennonites for 10 years, and I couldn't believe how much more time they spent in the Gospels than we had in the previous church that I'd been in. Mm-hmm. I, it was surprising. I'm like, wait a minute. Why are we always in the Gospels? They're like, so that Jesus is, is our central vision. And it, then it keeps those laminations from happening so easily. Yeah, that's. it seems like a good idea to read the Gospels a lot. It seems like Jesus should be who we read a lot. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and that would obviously do some corrective work on our other images of, of who God is. But, you know, one of the quotes you have in the book is that you like to think that we're all serving the same God, but sometimes you wonder if we have two or more diverse religions competing for the same Christian label. And you say, on the one hand, you have you know Driscoll and Piper, who are very prominent 
prominent voices in American Christianity, maybe Driscoll not as much as he used to, and then you have the Greg Boyds and the Brian McLarens of the world, and you want to think that it's the same God, but do you really think that is the same God that those differing camps are describing? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I think we have one God, but yeah, we we have a diversity of of, uh, images of that God in our mind, and Mm -hmm. so... So uh, I believe when Piper prays to God, uh, the one true God hears him. And when I pray to God, the one true God hears me. And when we both think of that God, he's completely different. <laughs> yeah. We do really have different. So it's on the, on the layer of ideas. Our ideas of God are just drastically different, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you quote Wesley in the book who says that um, it was Calvin's God who was, I think it was worse than the devil. Yeah, yeah. Do you, is that how you sometimes feel about the people, the neo-Calvin, uh, the Calvinist, you know, reform that's going on in the world right now in America, especially? Do you do you feel like that's a different God, or it's worse than the devil, as Wesley said? Well, I don't, I, I don't want to uh, be a bridge burner here, uh, but I would say that that I relate to some of the things that were repulsive to Wesley would be repulsive to me. And I don't just say that as an outsider throwing stones at neo-Calvinists. I was one. I was mm-hmm. a five-point Calvinist in the... Were you the really? Late, absolutely. The full-on tulip thing. And, and I just, including uh, really just almost Calvin's double predestination where he, God has decided before, not only before we've made a decision, but even before his own foreknowledge to elect some to eternal conscious torment for the praise of his glory. To me, that's just demonic. I mean, and, and I, I bought in fully. I was, a, I was a real fan and disciple of guys like R.C. Sproul and so on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I think that it's also important to say that while my theology is drastically different, I, I suspect they're more godly than I am. I hmm. suspect that, that uh, they're more faithful than I am. I really honor them as brothers and sisters uh, in the Lord and yet, so it's it, but it's these elements of theology that to me it's not it's not that those guys are demonic. It's just what I believed. I've come to conclude just did not reflect God the way that Jesus reflects God. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I, I know it's probably a long, complicated story, but give me the the elevator answer to how you morphed from being a hardcore five pointer tulip guy to what you are today. Oh, boy. Okay, I'm old. Like, I'm 51, so how do you summarize? I I will say this, that um, in the 80s, I was also a a hardcore biblicist. That that means virtually that I put the the Bible on on a pedestal alongside God, and it actually was my biblicism that caused my Calvinism to start unraveling. I just could not, in good conscience, do what I was doing to Scripture for the sake of my system. For example... God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Or that Jesus died for the sins, not our sins only. He's so explicit. Not our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, mm-hmm. so much for limited atonement. It's just, and I knew that, that the scriptures and my system were coming into conflict. And I was enough of a biblicist to, to say, well, I have, I have to let go of a system that has to, that where I know in my heart I'm manipulating the text. Mm-hmm. to keep it faithful to a system, and that's just wrong. So that's when it started unraveling, and then there was a rebuilding through the work of the Mennonites with me who were so gospel-centered. And then, and more recently, um, 
both the last 12 years have been mentored by an Eastern Orthodox retired archbishop, hmm. and and, uh, and they have a very, very merciful God. They just absolutely reject any idea of retribution as a, in a literal way. Hmm. That's good. Y- you say in the book that uh, the gospel doesn't change, but our vision does. And would you say that's, that's an apt description of, of your journey as well? Oh, very much so. Um, my vision of the, of the gospel and also how I share the gospel then. Uh, our tellings need upgrades constantly. And, and mine still will five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. I'll look back and go, ooh, that was pretty narrow. That wasn't as beautiful as it could be. No. But again, you know, we're on a journey. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I'm a few years younger than you. But when I was in college, I know some people have phases where they like experiment with drugs and maybe drink too much. My phase in college was a brief time of being a Calvinist as well. It was very short-lived, but I, I was preaching at a little country church, a uh, small town in Texas. And so one Sunday I'd go out there and be a Calvinist, and like two weeks later I'd come back and not be a Calvinist. So I, I feel bad for those people who had to hear me working that out. But it was definitely part of my journey as well as your journey uh, probably in a more pronounced way with you. But you say you're working towards a more beautiful God. Let, let's unpack that a little bit. Do, do you, what makes you feel like that is a good interpretive tool to say the beauty of God is a good way to determine how accurate the story is? Do you think that's fair to say? I would, I would call that a criteria, and, and this I'm really riffing off BZ, that, that uh, beauty historically in the ancient world, was one of the criterias for truth. And so uh, one of the ways he articulates it is that if, if, if your theology is ugly, to the same degree it's ugly, it's probably not true. Hmm. In that, God, I would define God as the perfection of all we call goodness, hmm. which is to say love. The perfection of goodness is love. And then that love or that perfection of what we call goodness, manifests as truth, beauty, and justice. And so um, if you can conceive of a God who is more true, more beautiful, and more just than the one you have in your head right now, then you need to go with that one because he's the hmm. perfection. It's, a, it's sort of an argument from perfection, isn't it? And, yeah. and what I would pose is that Jesus actually shows us that God okay. in his life. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's not just you saying that. I mean, like you referenced earlier, I mean, that's Hebrews, that's John's gospel. They're, they're saying if you want to see the image of God, it's, it's, it's Jesus. If, if you think you want to know what the Father looks like, you've seen Jesus. That is who the Father is. So uh, I know that's what you're saying, but I also like to say that seems to be what the Bible is saying as well. You know, so you, the, yeah, okay. <laughs> it really seems that way. <laughs> now, what we could also say then to be fair, we could say, okay, who's Jesus, though? Is it hippie Jesus, John Lennon Jesus, Tea Party Jesus, Cage Fighter Jesus? Which, and, and so Texas I said, Jesus. Well, That's yeah, the right yeah. Texas and, Jesus. And, 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 and let's be honest, right? So, so Jesus actually looks quite different in, in, in the Northwest than he does in, you know, in the South in some ways. And, and we just acknowledge that our temperaments and our cultures do affect how we see. Um, and that's why I think we just, have, you know, is the, the Ignatians, which I, Pope Francis was trained in, in by the Ignatians, they had to read all four Gospels every week. And when you do hmm. that, it begins to influence your spiritual eyes in a profound way. Um, so I'm always kind of trying to work on that and from that. Okay. Okay, that's good. All right, well, let's jump now to the two chairs. Okay. Now, okay. I know you said that it was based on the guy from Colorado Springs. 
I'm wondering, though, is it really based on that guy or is it based on Clint Eastwood in his speech a few years ago at the Republican National Convention? Are you sure that it's not that? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I skipped that speech, but I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So it's not that, okay? No, it's not that at all. We, okay. um, what, we found this, this great video, and the reason why we had to do some tweaks to it is because um, the guy, uh, Anthony Carbo, was, he's just so black and white about it, where it's like the first set is wrong, the second picture is right. The first one's Protestant, the second one's Orthodox. <laughs> it's like, ah, it's not quite that simple. <laughs> Um, and so we wanted to, sh- to say, yeah, it's not quite that simple, at least for us. Yeah. Well, well, that seems to be the work that you have to do whenever you're explaining God as a metaphor. Yeah. Because every metaphor breaks down. And yep. that's uh, the apophatic uh, tradition is – apophatic, cataphatic. A- apophatic y- is, yeah, was, is what you don't know. Yeah, what, what you, you don't know. know. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which you reference some in the book as well. Um, but let's, let's start. Let's, um, uh, let's do a basic breakdown of what the two chairs are. You know, you have the first chair – why don't you give it? Give it, give the elevator pitch. Don't give the full fifty minutes of it. But got it. So um, we tell the gospel in two ways. One way is the way I used to teach it, and the other is the way I'm learning to teach it. In the first way, you have two chairs. One represents God, and one represents people. And in and what you do is you tell the story such that um, God, the God chair, is facing the human chair until the human chair turns away from God, and then the and then the if you turn away from God, then God turns away from you because he's too holy, righteous, and just to look on sin. And so there's this turning away, uh, um, and so that God has to be turned away from us. And then he sends Jesus um, to d- take our place, to die for our sins, uh, and, and that if we believe that and we repent and turn back to God, then he enters relationship with us, and his chair then turns to us. So what you have in that first telling is, when I turn away, he turns away. When I turn towards, he turns towards. And if you don't turn towards, he will be forever turned away from you, and that's hell. In the second telling, um, the general idea is that no matter whether you turn towards him or away from him, he always comes around and he's always facing you, always, always in pursuit of you. And so um, when Adam and Eve turn away, Jesus, God, in, well, God comes and he looks for them. When Cain kills Abel, he comes and he looks for them. When uh, Abraham and Moses and David all have their screw-ups, God comes around and he still fulfills his covenants with them. And then ultimately God comes as Jesus. So we'll find sinners like the woman at the well. She's been divorced five times. Now she's with someone else. God's towards her. The woman caught in adultery, God's towards her. Zacchaeus in the tree, God's towards him. And then even when we crucify him on the cross, God is in Christ saying to us, I forgive you. And so when you see it visually, there's a real momentum that builds of of God always being for us. And we'll often see people just start sobbing because they're like, I thought he hated me. I thought he left me. I thought, or they're in perpetual fear. If I stumble... He'll be done with me. It's like he'll never be done with you ever. No. So the, the big difference, it seems to be, uh, in the two chairs is, or the metaphor of the two chairs, is the idea of what sin is. It seems like in the first chair you have basic substitutionary atonement view of God. You screw up. Something's between you and God. You can't fix it. Jesus has to come fix it. 
Uh, but while you screw up, God is so wrathful. God is so holy that he can't be around you and your sin. This, right. The second view has a different understanding of what sin is. Would you like to speak into what that is? Yeah, sure. So I, I would say it this way. The first one's almost like a courtroom where sin is lawbreaking mm-hmm. and that lawbreaking needs to be punished and that God is the punishing judge. And Jesus, of course, is your advocate then um, who sort of saves you from the wrath of God. In the second one, it's more of a hospital metaphor, what we'd call a therapeutic vision, in that sin is not law-breaking behavior. It goes much deeper. It's a fatal disease that's killing everybody. Mm -hmm. And you can never punish a disease out of someone. You can't spank a flu out of a baby. You know, it doesn't work. (laughs) What you need is not a punishing judge, but a great physician who comes with the solution. And there you get, you know... uh, it's similar to when Jesus said, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I be lifted up. And then when those who look at him, you're healed. So it's like sin isn't punished. It's actually healed out of you. Mm-hmm. So what, okay, first of all, we've always been taught, many of us have been taught that God is holy. He can't look at our sinfulness. And you pinpoint that to one passage in the book of Habakkuk, or as most people say, Habakkuk. And you said that's where it comes from, and it's a faulty reading of Habakkuk 1. You- yeah, I know what you mean. I actually, maybe I'll mention two passages. So one is in Habakkuk 1, where, he's, where Habakkuk is complaining to God, you're too holy, righteous, and pure to look on sin. But then the rest of the verse is, so why do you? <laughs> yeah. So, He's complaining that God looks on sin and is tolerating it. He's not saying he actually doesn't look on it. The other is Isaiah 59, where Isaiah says, "Look at um, God. You know, God, uh, your 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 sins have cut you off from God. Uh, God's God's face is hidden from you." But if you keep reading the chapter, he, he just says, "And God doesn't like this, so he." He decided to come and fix it himself as your savior, and yeah. he'll set a covenant where he never leaves you. He's mm-hmm. you never cut off. Yeah. Okay, so two things. First of all, do you say the word Habakkuk the way I did to sound superior to other people? Because that's how I say it, and that's the reason why. Or do you say because that's the correct way? I, I, it's probably like British or something. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so two, so if we're, we're changing our understanding that like God isn't too, um, too holy to be around our sin because that's not how really maybe what Isaiah or Habakkuk are saying, but I love how in your book you point back to Jesus never did this. Like, Jesus never acted that way. That's our, our best way to understand how God deals with our sin because Jesus ate, he lived, he dwelled with sinners. Right, and, he nev- and, and this is a very important point that he never once ceased to be fully God. So to say God can't look at sin is to say Jesus wasn't God, and that's, that's a heresy. Mm-hmm. But in fact, I, I think... Part of the problem is that we, we've misinterpreted holiness to mean some sort of um, a puritanism, whereas Jesus defines holiness and perfection as, as, uh, when, as compassion. Hmm. So God's, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Luke version as well, um, he, he says this, be perfect as I am perfect. Um, and then he describes that as because, because, because the Father is patient and kind even to the rebellious and ignorant that's mm-hmm. holiness hmm. holiness is actually otherness right yeah. and no every other god would would was not compassionate but this god's holy he's yeah. not like those other gods he's compassionate he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust 
So then what do we do with the pesky problem about the wrath of God? Because it seems like, you know, you have plenty of references in the Old Testament about the wrath of God. And how do we reinterpret this idea of the wrath of God then? Yeah, I think that just requires that we'd look, we would be very careful as we're reading Scripture to see a progression that's happening in their worldview that comes to a, a real head in, in Jesus and Paul. And here's what I mean. In the ancient world, God caused everything. Mm-hmm. So if something bad happened to you, God caused it. Why would God cause it? Because he's angry. Why is he angry? Because you sinned. So if you sinned and something bad happened to you, they'd say, God's angry and he was punishing us, and that's wrath. That Mm -hmm. was the ancient worldview. By the time you get already to David in the Psalms, he's saying things like this, God, I want you to wrath those guys. And then he tells you what it looks like. Like, for example, they'll dig a ditch and then fall in it. Mm -hmm. So, So it's like wrath is more about what um, the consequences of sin. And then you see this in Ezekiel and Isaiah, and they start using a phrase frequently, God gave them over. So Mm -hmm. then now instead of wrath being active punishment, it's God giving you over to the natural consequences of your own sin. Then you get to Romans 1, and Paul just comes right out and says that. Three times he says it, that the wrath of God is really um, God giving you over to your own stubborn defiance, and the wages of your own sin. Uh, and then by the time you get to Romans 5, he, will, he doesn't even dignify it by calling it the wrath of God anymore. He just calls it the wrath, and that God is saving you from the wrath. Hmm. And the wrath is, is virtually a synonym for death. That and, sin kills you, and God wants to save you from that. And, so, and this fits perfectly with the hospital metaphor, that sin is this disease that you need to be healed from. Um, Okay, so Richard Rohr and I, I went out to Albuquerque to interview him, and he was really cool because he had his dog in the room, and his dog was perfect. And so I thought today I'm going to bring my dog into the interview, and he's acting like a complete idiot right now. <laughs> so that's probably what you hear in the background, my dog destroying something. Okay, uh, so let's go back to the wrath of God, though. So you talk about in the book that, uh, I guess it was a gentleman named James Fowler who had the different stages of faith. Yeah. And there were six phases, zero through six or something like that. Yeah. And so he... If I understand what you're doing with his work, you're pointing to some of the Old Testament stuff as saying, well, this is an early understanding of faith. And so it was this, this way of reading that we've kind of progressed past. Is that, is that a fair take on how you, you understand that? Well, we're supposed to. And also we, we replay this in our own lives as we go through stages of faith. The, the mm-hmm. trick is that you don't want to get stuck at, at a primitive, like a stage two faith. Now, having said that, Fowler does treat it almost like this progression that you go from zero and hopefully you go up to six. Or we could say in the Bible it goes from zero to six. And it's not quite that simple. It's like in one area of my life, maybe I'm a real black and white thinker mm-hmm. and I need an anchor right now. And in another area, I'm, a, I, I'm not dualistic at all. I, I really see the whole and, and, and uh, I need freedom in that area. So I don't want to just make it like a ladder you climb up or something like that. It's yeah. more like, in which, in which area of your life are you at which stage? But yeah, your, the point is right, that there's these ancient worldviews can be very much like a stage two faith. And these are like veils. It's not just that we progress. I would say it's like Jesus needs to remove veil after veil after veil off of our eyes. And then finally, in Christ himself, you see the unveiled God. Hmm. Interesting. So would this have been the same way you understood scripture uh, when you 
were in your Calvinist days, you know, 20, 30 years ago, as you're understanding what the Bible is, would this fit in that same interpretive tool that you had? In? No, it's quite different in this yeah. sense. Um, I won't blame the Calvinists for e this either. This is a more general evangelical issue where you read the whole Bible in, as if it's flat. That means if you believe in, in inerrancy, that means every word is true, and every word is just as true as every other word because you can't have a half-truth. It's all true. But the problem with that then is you've got that what God says in Deuteronomy or what Moses says uh, in Exodus has the very same weight and authority and truth as what Jesus said. Well, that doesn't actually play out in the Bible. It doesn't work because Jesus will say, well, you heard it said, but I'm saying this. Mm -hmm. And he's trumping that earlier revelation. And I don't even, it's not even just that that earlier revelation was completely true but limited. It was actually distorted by the veils of their culture, by their nationalism, mm. by their bigotry. By These are barbarians, you know. And mm. how does God reach barbarians? <laughs> well, eventually he has to come in person to reach us. Yeah. So then how, how do you read Scripture? Obviously, Jesus is the lens through which you see everything. And we're yeah. not getting rid of the Old Testament God, but we're reading him through Jesus. Is that how you do that then? Yes. And I want to make a, a little uh, nuance there. Sometimes we've thought, and this, in early church history, they already saw the problem. That, you know, the, for the first hundred years, they're going, wow, Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. And then after that, like by the end of the first century, they're going, oh my goodness, God's doing some things in the Old Testament that Jesus would never do and never allow you to do. And that even that a father he revealed could never allow. So what do we do with those texts? Well, the problem is uh, one of the solutions was just to toss the whole Old Testament. And sometimes you will do that practically by saying, well, the Old Testament God. And what I would want to say is, which, which Old Testament God? You know, so you do have... Psalm 103 is as Christ-like as you get, you know. Yeah. So that I even use Christ-like passages as my lenses from the Old Testament. Hmm. Uh, the Lord's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't treat us as our sins, you know. It's th that kind of stuff. So, so sometimes uh, I'll just say, "Well, is is the God of this passage look like Jesus?" Yes. Okay. Good. Does the God of this passage look like Jesus? No. Okay. Why not? Oh, because it partly. It's in part a projection yeah. uh, of my own, you know, issues. And, and I don't want to throw those texts out. They're so important because I can hold them up as mirrors. Yeah, yeah. So when we're, when we're trying to interpret this way and we, we understand wrath as this is what we're, we get what we deserve. Um, you, you, <laughs> you reference my dog is barking like an idiot in the background. And it's really bothering me right and now. It's not bothering me at all. I love it. Well, I. <laughs> You know, Roar must not only be a deeper person, but he's a better dog trainer than me as well. Uh, anyway, so you have a, a quote from an archbishop who there's no way I can say his name. But he says that we need hell to keep our envy of sinners at bay. And so that's one of the fears is if we get rid of this idea that, that wrath is like, okay, God's going to punish us. Then all of a sudden, like our morality is going to go out the window. How, how can we not let that happen by, and still have this loving view of God? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I suppose I'd answer it in two ways. First of all, um, that has been a predominant view, that you need a threat of wrath to help people behave and to control them. Uh, and that, that, that's been a, that's even 
one of the ways that they would do teaching in, in Judaism and in the Greek world and in the Christian world. You use, you use the language of wrath and hell as rhetoric in order to keep people in line uh, so that they won't, you know, go crazy. And now here's my two objections to that. One is a biblical one. Paul doesn't think that's true. <laughs> and Jesus didn't act as, that, as if that's true. Um, Paul says... It's the kindness of God that leads to you, you to repentance, not holding a threat of wrath over them. Um, also, in, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, it's the grace of God that teaches you no to say no to ungodliness. It's not like fear that teaches you to say no. Um, so I don't see Paul especially um, buying into this idea that, that if you threaten people, it will help somehow. But I would also say... Even if that worked, let's say when Jonathan Edwards was preaching 150, 200 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. okay, sinners in the hands of a sinners in the hands of an angry God there, and everyone's repenting and becoming Christians on on a bad foundation of fear of judgment rather than perfect love that's supposed to drive out fear. Well, even if it worked, maybe that's not right, but certainly it doesn't work now. Yeah, when you preach. Wrath and, uh, you know, maybe, you, maybe you'd preach wrath to a religious leader. That might work. But if you preach it out, you know, on the streets here um, to people that you, where you're trying to do evangelism, it doesn't work at all. It just drives people. Yeah. And, and Paul, Paul warned us of this. He's like, you, you bring out the law, sin comes alive, man. Mm -hmm. You bring out grace, and that's what, what's actually going to, to free people. But it, is sound, it does sound risky, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And... I wonder, though, is to some who are going to listen to this and go, well, just because it doesn't work doesn't mean it's not true. Right. How, how, do, we, how do we understand that? If, are we really using uh, just pragmatism as the interpretive tool for the text? Only as a secondary one. I would say the primary yeah. one is Paul. Yeah. yeah. Paul is absolutely, you know, he had the same objections, right, at the coming to him. His opponents in Rome we're saying at the beginning of Romans 7, oh, shall we sin then that grace may abound all the more? And I'd say if that objection doesn't come up, you haven't preached Paul's gospel. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're undoing this understanding of this courtroom view of God. That's not a beautiful God. God who's not always there, not always facing you, that's not beautiful. The idea of a, a wrathful God who's just waiting to punish, that's not beautiful. Uh, another subject which you, you dive into in the book is the understanding of theodicy. Where is God when adversity happens? And I, th I think you're right on. You, you, I think you, uh, you reference Darwin and something I never knew, but when his, uh, when his 10-year-old daughter died, you point to that and say that probably was a, what undid his faith, not his understanding of evolution as the mechanism for how you know, this worked, but uh, as the world works. But uh, it's actually the suffering that he experienced when his daughter passed away. And so, first of all, that was really insightful. I never knew that. That's great. Uh, second of all, so let's jump right into the understanding of theodicy and the cross. How does, how does that go together? Okay. So um, in my book, I actually, call, I actually mention an anti-theodicy of the cross. And here's why. What we mean by theodicy is it's a rational response to the problem of suffering and evil. And so I'll lay out a very simple version of that. Problem of suffering or evil has been said this way. If God is all loving and God is all powerful, why is there suffering in the world? Yeah. Well, there is suffering in the world. So therefore, either God is not all loving because he could do something about it, but he doesn't want to. Or he's not all-powerful because he loves us, but he can't do something about it. 
So what I do in the book is I, I, I look at, um, I look at the, you know, does, does God cause evil? Does God cause suffering? Now, this is where the neo-Calvinists would actually come out and say, yes. Um, John Calvin said, uh, God not only allows suffering, he governs every evil, nay, he commands it. And I'm like, whoa, that's what Wesley's rejecting. God commands evil? God commands rape? God commands molestation? God commands, you know, oh, that's crazy. You know, and so... Um, and then, and then, so the modern versions of that are slightly milder, but it's like, uh, why, you know, why did the bridge in Minneapolis collapse? Well, Piper tells his granddaughter, it's like, because God made it collapse so that men would fear him. It's like, what? <laughs> um, so I think there's an alternative to that. But um, Martin Luther really gave a warning about this. He said, if you, if you try to give a rational explanation to the problem of evil, you will all, always, always end up calling evil good yeah. or, God, or making God evil. So it'd be like this. Uh, I use a, a test in my mind because I knew of a, a particular case uh, where a toddler drowns in a hot tub. All right, so what do we do with that? And, and, and so that, that, um, we, ha- we have to say God didn't cause it if he's good. He didn't cause it if he could. But then how on earth could he allow it? And this is where uh, I talk about a theology of consent, that God has created the world with some ne- necessary conditions for our good. And those two necessary conditions are, one, a natural law, like you have to have gravity or you'd spin off the earth. Mm-hmm. You ha- gravity's good. It's necessary. But actually, that condition can cause great suffering. When you fall off a cliff, yeah. gravity kills you, and God doesn't interrupt. He doesn't interfere in natural law. Uh, he consents to it because it's necessary, but it can be painful. The other necessary condition is free will, um, or at least we'd say free. We're free human agents, and and that's necessary if we're going to be if we're going to love. Yeah. Love is not possible, but it also that creates a, a possible condition for evil, where I could really, you know, it's my freedom that that lets me sin. So, yeah. so the, the, these are, we've got suffering in the world. And then I, instead of saying, let's rationally explain this away, I say, no, um, suffering brings you to the foot of the cross where we see on the cross, here's, here's a man who represents both um, the beauty and goodness of God and this, all the suffering of the human condition in one person right in front of you. And in his suffering, somehow he pours out his love, and that love can heal you. It can redeem you. So he's allowed, he's consented even to being crucified. But in, in his consent, he also participates in our suffering and then responds to it in a way that's going to restore and redeem everything. Yeah. That's a really short version. Yeah, but, yeah. You so, know. so you have this line about the, the anti-theodicy God. He doesn't control, God doesn't control the situation, nor is God found sulking in the corner. So it's, it's neither one, but I love your point. And it's, it, it very much reminds me of Simone Vell's point of, uh, or the conversation that he's attributed to when, uh, when he's in the Holocaust and people say, you know, where is God? And he points to the gallows and say, that's where God is. God is in the gallows. And your move is, if you want to know where God is, he's not in control, but he's also not sulking in the corner, but behold, he's there on the cross. That's it. That's yeah. it. I think and from his wounds comes supernatural love that can actually overcome everything. I mean, so the end game is redemption, but in the meantime, what a mess. And it's because he, he, 
he's going to reign through love, not control and coercion. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you tell one story in the book, towards the end of the book, that I, I completely, as a pastor, let me be honest, I've exaggerated some stories in my life too, so I'm not here to judge you. There's no wrath for me. I've got nothing but love for you. But there's no way this story really happened. It is it is too out there. The story, the, the, the husband whose wife becomes an alcoholic and a drug addict, she ends up on the street, she gets a new boyfriend, she leaves husband and kids, and then the husband says, you can move back into our house with your boyfriend, we'll get you cleaned up, sends them off to rehab, they end up getting out of rehab, move back in the house with her new, like, soon-to-be husband, and I'm like, that guy doesn't really exist. I know Canadians are really nice, but even that, I don't believe. There's no way that really happened. Yeah, in fact, it's, it, it's, I, I downplayed it. And uh, so before oh, I even, before, I really downplayed it. It gets much, much messier than I write about in the book, and it gets much more beautiful. Um, but I, I wanted to restrict what I said so that I absolutely wasn't exaggerating. And I sent it to the woman for her to approve every detail. And I said, is there, anything, is there anything in this story where I exaggerated or got it wrong? And she said, no, the only correction you need to make is that I'm not just in school for family teaching family counseling now. I've started my practice. That yeah. was the only error I had to correct. My goodness. So it, it was unreal. It was a Hosea story. It's, it's it, just yes, exactly. That's amazing. A, for, for any pastor who's listening to this, you find this book, I think it's in chapter 14. Yeah. Uh, you find that story, and you're going to save that one for Easter Sunday. That is such a good story. I, there's no way. I mean, there's, that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. And it's the fact that it's even true makes it even better. Yeah, and I got to watch the whole thing. I was a witness of every uh, – I mean, we're talking years of events. And, um, uh, yeah, I just – in fact, now the, the original husband is remarried, um, and we just had – we just had a wonderful meal together with both couples and their families. Oh, goodness. Okay, in this story, the, the husband whose wife has the addiction is not just at the wedding where his ex-wife is getting married to the boyfriend she met when she's in her, you know, this terrible spiral. He's the person who gives her away. And you go, no, this is like that, that does not happen. That's ridiculous. But, is that um, even legal? You know? <laughs> no. But it, it actually <laughs> happened. It was... It was uh, and that that was a detail I had to check on because I did know before I wrote the story that she had asked him to do that. But then I had to go and check if he actually did it. Oh, and he said, oh yeah, he did. Wow. Well, kudos to him. He is a, yeah. a that's that's a beautiful story of the beautiful love of God displayed in a human being. And uh, yeah, that's great. Well, hey, the the book was fun. I enjoyed talking with you. It's a it's a helpful book, and uh, I encourage everyone to get a copy of it. The title is uh, a more Christ like God a more beautiful gospel. Uh, Brad, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Luke. I, I enjoyed that. Right on. All right, thanks, man. All right, bless you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>